Welcome to Season 5, Episode 2 of Upbeat by Everything Conducting, the podcast made by conductors. My name is John Devlin, and I'm the music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Enrico Lopez-Yanez, principal pops conductor of the Nashville Symphony. And John and I are still in person for this episode. That's two in a row, three in a row. This is impressive. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and I like this as a trend. And this is the first time we've ever recorded two episodes in two days because we are in residence That's at the Lake George right. Music Festival, aren't we? makes us sound a lot fancier than we are but uh we are very excited we've been having some beautiful opportunities to listen to music making with the lake george music uh festival orchestra right. we've had a bunch of interviews we've had a lot of great meals and drinks together i mean what more could you ask for than being on a lake and eating and spending time with your friends well, that's pretty good with camille aria me and you in any place that we're gonna <laughs> feel happy and uh, especially with the warm welcome we've gotten from everyone here uh we want to again issue a big thank you to alexander lombard who's the executive director and roger Kalia, who you'll hear from later on in this episode that's right we have a really unique episode because we are inviting a bunch of guests on that's for our right. interview segment uh but unlike last episode which was sort of just an interview, one of our special episodes. This will be back to our regularly programmed and regularly scheduled style. So That's we will right. give you all a 4-4 and a coda just like you've uh, become a And don't forget to. about the fake ad. Everyone's oh, favorite oh, part of, course, of the episode. Yeah. What do you mean? Those are 100% real. We oh, trademark oh, right. each of those ideas. <laughs> I do find case. my bank account going up and up and up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but John, let's catch up a little because you've had a busy summer and there have been some cool things going on. First of all, you got to visit the orchestra of our former teacher and former podcast guest That's Jim right. Ross <laughs> at the Alexandria Symphony. It was very cool because on July 4th, I conducted from the Ohio River, which runs through downtown Wheeling. And when I turned around to speak to the audience, I could see the balcony of my current apartment in Wheeling. Wow. And that's a beautiful feeling to have. And then four days later, on July 8th, I conducted the Alexandria Symphony on the Potomac River. And when I turned around, I could see the balcony of the first place Camille and I lived in when we were married uh, there in Old Town Alexandria. And so to return to a former home and like you said, what an honor. And uh, I feel privileged to have been invited by Jim Ross, uh, whom you and I both idolize, um, to conduct his orchestra in their birthday celebration. Because the National Symphony has July 4th locked down. So four days later, (laughs) Alexandria on the same river they put up in the air some competing fireworks and it was a lot of pressure because they told me I had to start the 1812 overture at 9.30 no matter what because the United States Army cannons shoot no matter what at that time and they closed the flight path for reagan airport for 20 minutes oh, wow. while these fireworks are going off so it was a lot of pressure i'm taking it down the operations manager whispering in my ear you get behind by 15 seconds oh no yeah, so that was a really fun concert and we did we did a lot of exciting music from a well-known name for example carlos simon who is in residency at the kennedy center right up the potomac river and where camille and i used to work we did a piece by liana primignani that we had given the world premiere of earlier that week in wheeling that um pays tribute to a revolutionary wartime hero named Betty Zane from Wheeling. Oh. And uh, we, we just had a lot of fun doing a mix of old and new music. And then um, we also have some exciting news, speaking of Wheeling, which yeah. is that we have hired a new executive director. Anybody you might know? Uh, someone we're a little bittersweet about <laughs> in uh, the current room because, yes, John has stolen away our former VP of Operations and General Manager from the Nashville <laughs> Symphony, Sonia Thones. How lucky are you? I know. We feel really blessed. And one of 
of the things that you and I share in common is like um, a, a beautiful network of people with, that we know in the industry. And for Sonia, um, she has a deep connection to the area with most of her family being from Pittsburgh and still residing in that area. So um, I do feel, of course, badly to pull her away from <laughs> you, but she's um, long wanted to become an executive director of an orchestra after having ascended as high as you can possibly ascend at one of the world's great orchestras in Nashville. And so for her to start this next chapter together and stay in the family um, is really important to us. Uh, we've been um, about a year as we looked for exactly the right person. We wanted to open the next chapter of the Wheeling Symphony um, as I begin my new contract and we come fully out of COVID planning mode um, with somebody at the helm that could really steer our orchestra into a, a, a new a new optimistic chapter for what we can accomplish as we head towards our 100th anniversary in just wow. a few years. So um, I cannot wait to get started with Sonia. And I have a feeling that she'll be a guest on the podcast in pretty short order. That sounds like a great plan. Yeah, I would love that. <laughs> and uh, speaking of exciting things this summer, um, keeping in the great tradition of uh, of uh, giving Roger a little bit of grief for having multiple jobs, you're taking up all the guest conducting. So <laughs> tell us where you've been and uh, how it's felt for you this summer where you told me that this yeah. was your first week not conducting like multiple orchestras in a good long while. Yeah, it's been busy. Well, so we, you know, we did our fireworks show uh, in Nashville on the 4th, of course, uh, which is always fun. Uh, we had some rain and thunder delays, though. So our uh, start time was pushed back by like an hour and a half, which it was nationally televised. So that makes it hard for TV, but somehow they made it all work. <laughs> uh, and then that same week, I also had uh, Jurassic Park, the film, which you conducted uh, recently, which was a lot of, of our fun. favorites. And uh, and did the first half for a, a Johnny Mathis show that was happening in Nashville, then uh, went back to San Francisco to work with a great Mexican artist, uh, Aida Cuevas, who's the queen of mariachi so oh. her and the symphony uh and then worked with circular symphony in houston followed by uh portugal the man at red rocks which was amazing red rocks. I mean, how was that i mean it was incredible it was sold out it's one of the prettiest venues i've ever seen and been around and it just, just the energy and the location combination were just incredible uh, that was just such a blast. Um, and then from there, we I got to go to my hometown. So talk about going right. to places where you used to live. <laughs> uh, and I conducted two shows in San Diego uh, with the San Diego Symphony. The first one was Guster, which is a sort of Boston-originated uh alt-rock band exactly. uh, that I've worked with before. And, and the second best one after Dispatch. <laughs> That's right. And then um, uh, worked, uh, premiered a new show. Uh, I did all the arrangements for this group called Mariachi Los Camperos. They're an amazing Grammy Award-winning mariachi group based out of L.A. Uh, that have just decades and decades of fantastic albums. Uh, so I, it was a great pleasure to get to write all the orchestrations for them and for that show and then get to conduct it in my hometown, which was super exciting. And then came up here to New York State to do uh, Pink Martini with the Philadelphia Orchestra at right. Saratoga the day before we came to Lake George. That's right. And then I picked you up. You <laughs> get, reached out to give me a big hug and the wine bottle that you brought crashed oh on the floor gosh, in front of the hotel. Was, yeah, that um, was not great. <laughs> <laughs> but we made it with, with it with some delicious cocktails last night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was uh, hopefully understandably a little tired and maybe out of it. And that's why the <laughs> bottle fell. Not for other reasons. <laughs> um, well, one of the ways that you get on the podium with all these opportunities is by being impressed off the podium in the way that you present yourself in your written materials. And that's going to be the topic of our 4-4 today. That's right. 
John, you and I are going to dive into how to best sort of market and present yourself in written form, whether that's your resume, your cover letter, or your bio. These are materials that will either help get you access to a job or help portray you to an audience or to a publicist in a way that you want to be able to sell and market yourself best. So we're going to dive into that as well as our interview, which, as I hinted at, will feature several different guests from the Lake George Music Festival. So stick around as we give our first upbeat and head to the 4-4. Welcome back to The 4-4, where each week we take one topic that we think will be relevant to your conducting career and dive in-depth into it in four separate parts. And today we're talking about written materials that help to highlight your career. We're going to start off by talking a little bit about resumes, because resume is one of the first forms of materials that you will have to create in your career, because it's one of the first things that you will use to sell yourself and make advancements in your career uh, through written and other forms of application. Right. Because I think that we see a lot of different requirements in applications, right? Some want video, some want references, some want curriculum vitae, um, but almost always it's a resume. And if there's a second thing, it's going to be a cover letter. And so we're going to start by talking about those two things, which are typical first round application materials. And so, um, Enrico, what's a good way to start in your mind thinking about your resume? Well, we've talked a lot about just generally speaking organization and visual appearance and aesthetics of materials. So let's avoid that kind of stuff for now. We all know you want something very clean, something very crisp, something that looks organized and formatted properly. There are plenty of resources, including John's articles on our website, where you can find out how to write a resume. It's a great website. It is a fantastic website. And you can find out all about the formatting of your resume and CV and other things like that. But when it comes to actually writing descriptions of the jobs you've had, of the posts that you're trying to sell to the person reading your materials. One thing I would say, uh, I love making sure that every bullet point or every descriptor has some sort of big action-driven word, and it also leads to some sort of accomplishment. If you are the assistant conductor at a local community orchestra or some sort of you know ensemble at your university, you can easily say, I conducted this ensemble on three concerts and okay, fine. Yes, that is very factual and maybe true. You could also say words like I start off by saying organized or created or developed or these are all powerful words to start off a sentence that show something that you accomplished before you even write what it is that you did and then try and lead that sentence to then show what the results were of your work. So if you developed a program to try and incorporate underrepresented communities through your musical selections, then talk about what that led to. Did any of those people actually from that community come and attend? Or did you grow a new following? Or did you grow any kind of interest from your regular subscribers or listeners to concerts in that new type of music? So everything that you're writing has to be, in my opinion, angled to highlight something you did and something that it accomplished. I create a new resume and cover letter 
of course, cover letter, for each application designed around the job posting that the orchestra has put out into the world saying, this is who we want. And a lot of people ignore the opportunity of changing their resume to highlight and in the right order the things that seem priorities for the organization. So if you're applying to a collegiate professorship, you may well want to lead off with your education, be like, you don't have to worry about it. I have my DMA because that may be a first uh, cut for people in that process. Whereas if you're applying to be the assistant conductor of the Houston Symphony, I wouldn't lead with the degree. I would lead with my highest level professional conducting experience, whatever that may be. And so how you organize the format of the resume tells a story, which is why I think that we're pairing this well with cover letters because you can kind of do something similar with both. And I like what you're saying in your resume, which is in your descriptor, Think about a couple of things. First of all, a mission and a result is a great way to do it, but also be a clarifier. If you are presenting an orchestra that could be a $30,000 a year community orchestra, or it could be a $3 million a year regional orchestra, but you're applying to a job halfway across the country where they won't know your local scene, say explicitly, was the music director of a $1.2 million regional orchestra, or was the assistant conductor of a meaningful community orchestra that presented eight concert subscription series, whatever it is, so that you're taking away ambiguity. Because if someone can't identify how this bullet point in your resume increases your profile, it won't carry any weight. In addition, you're going to have to play the length game. Because as Enrico is saying, you might want to add descriptions, but then you might not be able to list every place you ever guest conducted, or you might not be able to list every award or certificate that you won along the way. So you want to make sure that you're, you have a judicious use of the descriptions, along with making sure that every title you want listed and every place you've conducted that you want them to know about is there in some way. And that's tricky because for you, you probably used to be able to list your guest conducting individually by orchestra and what you did there. You probably can't do that anymore. No, I mean, that's something that you can keep if you want to do a CV. And eventually, some places may ask for that. But if you're doing a resume, I don't know about you, John, but I like to limit myself to two pages. I think right. that is the maximum length a resume should ever that's be. That's my advice as well, yeah. two pages. So if you can't fit it on two pages, that means you either have to start cutting stuff that was on the older or earlier side of your career or the less significant stuff and make sure that you're prioritizing the important things. And I'm just going to go back to one thing you said. I love the clarifying thing, too. That also comes into play with the title of your position, because yes. as we've discussed before, assistant conductor can mean something completely different from one orchestra or organization to another, as can any other title. So you want to clarify what the types of things you were doing or your responsibilities in that title, because an assistant conductor could be someone who literally did almost nothing or was one of the most involved people in that organization. Sure. And so if you had tons and tons of duties, you want to highlight the skills that that left you with for the next organization to take advantage of when they hire you. Right. And and I'm perfectly happy to share that in one place, like I don't have anywhere on my resume that I built these programs or developed this audience by this much, but those are right in my cover letter, right? So if you don't have the space or don't choose to include certain accomplishments or data-driven results in your resume, a powerful thing to do is connect that in your cover letter so that the way your resume flows, your cover letter is a, is a 
embellishment of the um, storytelling that you want to do on the on the more formal document in the resume. So um, those are some of our qu- kind of quick hitting hits about your resume. And as Enrico mentioned, yeah, please check out the article that's on Everything Conducting um, because that's another way that you can um, access some of the best practices that we advise here at the EC team for your resume. So for beat two, we'll dive into cover letters. John, as you touched on, the cover letter really is something that is very intricately connected to the resume because it is something that finally gives you the opportunity, if you don't have space in your resume, to elaborate on what you've done. So how do you go about building your cover letters? My feeling over the years is that people vastly underestimate the importance of a cover letter. It's the one document that you have that you can make your argument to a committee about whether or not you are the right person for the job. And let's be honest, for most of these jobs, if it's a music director position, there are doctors and lawyers and scientists and politicians on that committee, along with maybe two or four musicians that can understand your resume thoroughly because they understand the places you've worked before or can glean something from your conducting videos. But everyone can understand if you've made a logical argument as to why you might be a great fit for their organization. So first of all, analyze every piece of data available to you about the orchestra. That starts with the position description. But then I have clicked on every single web page available in every corner of their website to read everything about how this orchestra talks about itself because it gives me an understanding of their priorities, not just what they say in the position description, but what over the years by bulk they've said about themselves and how they've represented themselves. I've looked at every piece of their social media that I can find. I've looked up the type of person the executive director is, the head of the search committee. I look at where the search committee members work and what relationship they've had with the orchestra. And I look up news articles written about the symphony to understand from a press angle how they're being represented. And then I look at what the previous music director did and I try to get a sense based on the language and the position description. Are they looking for someone to carry on a legacy or are they looking for a swing of the pendulum to a new type of leadership. And so we'll talk, I'm sure, throughout this beat about how we actually make those arguments, but that's what I do to prepare. I think that's critical and that's great advice because how are you going to sell yourself if you don't know what the purchaser is looking for? Um, that's, That's perfect. I think the other thing that I always try and accomplish right off the bat is, this is silly, but just make sure that you are actually custom tailoring your cover letters to the position and to the organization. I can't tell you how many cover letters I've read where they forgot to change the name of the orchestra and instantly you now know that this is just a recycled piece of paper that has been used on every application that this candidate has ever written. Right. And yes, some of your statements may be applicable to multiple organizations, but this is like you're saying, John, your opportunity to stand out and show what makes you unique you want to be unique to what they need as well because those organizations are unique and have unique needs. So when I start crafting 
uh, cover letter, I want to narrow down the areas that I'm going to try and sell myself based mm-hmm. on my research and find the things that align most closely between their missions and my personal artistic mission. And then, like I said in the descriptor of a resume, this is where you can really start to dive into details about the things that you have accomplished or done at your previous positions that would help their organization or better their organization or make their jobs easier. Right. Because you have people from potentially the education department, from the artistic team, from the production team, all reading these materials. And if you know something about those or can display experience working on projects that they're going to need help with, and you can show that you have skill sets that will benefit their lives or make their lives easier, this is a great place to start to highlight that. I love what you said about solving problems because if it's an orchestra, say, not near a major airport, they may have a hard time getting major soloists to want to visit the city because of the difficulty of the logistics of the travel. But if you can say that I've also previously worked at a place that was rather remote and these are the types of soloists because of my personal relationship with them that I was able to draw to that community, that can be a powerful force. If you can talk about what the budget was like at an orchestra, and then where it was after a certain number of years. If you can talk about the increase of subscription sales, if you can talk about the way you like to work with a staff, and take a stance. Because if you know you want to work in a certain way or focus on a certain type of repertoire or start certain types of programs, you might as well say that. It may injure you at certain places because they don't find an alignment with those priorities. But then guess what? You probably wouldn't have loved working there if your priorities did not align with those of the organization. So I've always found that being rather bold in the cover letter and saying, here's the type of work that I would like to do over the next five, three, eight, ten years, depending on the type of job, right? If it's an assistant conductor job, three or four. Um, Would you like to do this work as well? And ask that in a kind way. And then if they say yes and advance you, you have an understanding that maybe there's a mandate. Yes, your perspective on what the orchestra could do under your leadership aligns with our mission and values. And then you're likely to advance further in the process anyway because you're probably standing out by making an argument that has some risk associated with it because it's not for everyone, but it's for you. Yeah. And beyond just serving the organization, I love your idea of researching the organization. Research the community too, because say in our last episode, you know, Roger was talking about programming a Bollywood concert because he is working in a community that has a significant Indian population. So if you happen to research a community and you see that there's a significant I don't know, Latino community, and you have done some programs for Hispanic Heritage Month or Dia de los Muertos, and you can talk about that in your cover letter, that is a great way to show the organization that you are thinking about their community even beyond just the immediate people in their organization, which hopefully you're applying to an organization that is mindful of their community and trying to be connected to it. That's another way to really benefit your application and strengthen the fact that you are looking beyond their immediate goals and into their sort of community-wide goals, which can be very helpful. And I've referenced a couple of times the position description, but in the actual writing of the letter, that's where I find it most useful to use that as kind of a checklist. Like if they have five paragraphs describing what they want, like here's what we hope you do artistically. Here's what we hope you do in the community. Here's what we hope you do as a fundraiser. Here has, here's how we hope you develop new audiences. Um, you can align your 
argument alongside that because you probably have already made those arguments in other places in the past in cover letters. So tailor it to them, maybe even order it in the same way they're ordering it to show you've reflected on their thing. And I often use the phrase, as stated in your position description, as I noticed on your website, as I researched on your form 990 on GuideStar and saw that this growth has happened. Um, that says to the person who's maybe the executive director and who's the head of the search committee, they're probably the people looking most closely at the applications at the first round. This applicant has spent the time required to know if they are a good fit here. Let's really take them seriously as we analyze their own arguments because they've taken the, the opportunity to analyze ours. Can I ask you a nitty gritty question because we're talking about the writing and selling of ourselves. How do you phrase things or how far or how conservatively do you write things like I would be the perfect candidate for this position or I am, you know, have the exact needs for this? You know, what what is the kind of language that you would say is appropriate versus maybe a little beyond appropriate? Yeah, like you, I've seen many cover letters written to try to work at the Wheeling Symphony. When the applicant assumes they know what's exactly right for us, it's a little bit off-putting, I think. I don't use language like I would be perfect, but I see an alignment in values between who I am as an artist and blank symphony orchestra. I feel that way because in your position description, on your website, and in your mission statement, you say this very clearly. And if you look at my past, I also do work that contributes to the types of things you care about. Let them decide if I'm perfect. What I'm trying to say is I see the potential for a good fit. I love that. That's great. Uh, yeah, because it can certainly be off-putting to have someone in writing come across as, you know, if you're not careful, a know-it-all or, a, you know, you will come across potentially as egotistical or things like that if you're too confident in writing in saying that you are the ideal candidate or, you know, let them decide. I love that as a philosophy is let them decide as long as you're showing the alignment that you have with their needs. Yeah. And I think the only time I would step out of that zone is if it's really true. Like if you say that for years, this is the place I really want to work for this reason. And then that job comes open, say in the in the document, for years, I've been hoping for this position to become available because the work of Maestro or Maestra Blah meant this to me. And it's the community that I feel connected to for this reason. I went to school there. I'm from there, whatever. And so I've write you with great enthusiasm, hoping that I'm a perfect fit. Like that to me would resonate, but not if it's application four of six this month. Right. Yeah. But uh, that feels probably like a good place to take our break. I'm really excited to head into a word from our sponsors before we come back with beat three. Have you ever been asked to record a San Martini symphony? or been offered a record label contract in order to record the collected concerti of Corelli? Did these types of offers strike fear in your musical heart because you don't really know what a gut string is and haven't actually finished reading that treatise on Baroque Boeing by, uh, it was Mozart's dad, right? Yeah, I think so. 
Anyway, say yes to those unique opportunities because we are here to save the day. Introducing the Period Practice plugin from Baroque Betterment Industries. No longer worry about what the hell Dagamba means, limited vibrato, faster moving and weirdly shaped bows, or whether that figure should have been played in the authentic quintuple dotted style. Simply purchase PPP, add it to your pre-existing recording platform and our proprietary technology will enable you to perform period practice pieces like a pro. Simply input your selected decade between 1590 and 1750, the appropriate country, and level of desired persnicketiness, and let PPP do the rest. Notes decay faster, sound less beautiful, and PPP can even overdub harpsichord into your figured bass line. Figured bass improvisation is in beta and can be added for an annual fee of $99. Invest in PPP from Baroque Betterman, our version of PPP that will pay you back. Buy now to broaden your repertoire, increase the legitimacy of your recordings, and really annoy that viola player who always likes to brag about the Baroque bow she bought instead of having a retirement account. Period practice plug-in. Please help us now before ChatGPT does this for free. For beat three, we're going to dive into biographies, something that you will be asked to send to organizations all the time, hopefully, at one point in your career. Uh, it's the way that we portray ourselves often on our website. Right. It's a way that you may do it in your info on your social media account. Uh, but it's also the thing that may end up in print in people's hands when they're watching you conduct. And that may be read more than the actual paying attention of your concert <laughs> at some points. Uh, so, John, this is a very important uh, way of selling yourself differently than your CV and resume because now you're crafting something that is not necessarily being read by industry professionals but just your audience at large. Where do you start? Right. And this is, I think we should make a disclaimer that this section is intended for, for people that don't have a mic drop bio like you do. That's just like, here are all the orchestras I conduct on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> so for us, plebes, uh, you know, I think that we think of the biography in a similar way as to the cover letter. It's not just a resume where you list in prose format the things that you do and are. Right. I think it tells a story in a narrative way and shows people your priorities. Because guess what? If you are listed as the conductor of a concert and people are flipping through the program and see your bio, they understand that you went to school for conducting and got your start somewhere and played an instrument and then, you know, that you have a dog named Fido. Like, although I do like when people include stuff about their dogs. <laughs> but what's really interesting to me is what goes first when they start talking about themselves? What do you prioritize? And so I put a mission statement in there and I say that I am a proponent of American music, that I am an innovator of concert design, and that I'm a thought leader in the industry for classical music because those are three things I really care about, right? Like what music I program as a priority, I love as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, like thinking a little differently about concert designs and what we're doing right now is being leaders in thinking about classical music from a broader perspective. And the same thing that I, you know, the, my work with the League of American Orchestras or the way that I worked with the Conductors Guild, like these types of things. So for you, Enrico, like what are the ways that you make those arguments about yourself in your bio? Well, I think one of the big things is showing it through examples. Again, like in the cover letter, if you are advocating, like you said, John, for innovative concert design, or, you know, for me, it's working with a variety of genres and artists right. that maybe other people don't, 
then I need to back that up. And so then I'll talk about some of the unique concerts or artists I've collaborated with to show that, you know, I'm doing stuff differently than some other people have in the past. Um, another way of distinguishing yourself in this section is to also include stuff that maybe wouldn't be appropriate in your cover letter, like tangential hobbies that are still related to what you're doing uh, musically. So, for example, you know, we are advocates through everything conducting. We yes. could talk about this and our, you know, mission to help other colleagues and future generations of conductors. It's something that we, as you said, have as our mission. And this is a great place to talk about that and somewhere that maybe we wouldn't talk about if we were applying to as, you know, an assistant conductor job somewhere, right. but certainly to the general public, this is something that's important to us and paints a picture of who we are beyond just what they're seeing on stage, which I think is really critical. I think it's really important for people to focus on what you just said about the authenticity of being able to back up what you say with data afterwards, right? So when I say I'm a proponent of new American music, I then list every single composer of American music that I've given a premiere or commission to. And that backs up in a substantive way what I argued at the beginning. I talk about the people and projects that I put together that are unique to me as a concert designer. Um, and then, yes, I list everything conducting and my various other uh, areas of service to the classical music world uh, as a whole. And that creates that narrative and then uh, solidifies it as people see, oh, the work is being done. I think it a little bit unfulfilling when people list things like innovative, champion, uh, leader, and then just go on to talk about where they went to school and the orchestras they've conducted and fail to highlight the things that make them innovative or a leader or a champion of certain types of things. So um, I love what you're saying to, to um, back up in a way that resonates with the people that you're having in the audience. And something that I always do is with my biographies, if given the opportunity, I amend them for where they're going to appear. And if I'm going to an orchestra for the first time, this, the last sentence of the first paragraph is, I'm very excited to be going going to Sarasota and working for the orchestra for the first time if I know that the only place that's going to appear is on the Sarasota Orchestra's website and program. And it just makes people think, again, just like the cover letter, um, wow, they paid attention to me. This isn't cookie cutter. This is important. To them. Yeah. And, you know, remember that the people reading your bio are more likely or at least a greater number of them are people in an audience or people perusing a website, not people from the organization. So it's not necessarily the musicians that are going and looking at the program book to see what your bio is. So you're trying to appeal to a general audience that maybe is less familiar with a conductor and, you know, the kind of traditional career things that one might do. And so in your wording, be careful not to get overly, you know, caught up in terminology that might not be understood by the general public or try and include things that might appeal to general audiences, such as philosophical things about you and your mission. And, you know, education is a very common one. A lot of people talk about being proponents of education. But like you said, if they don't say anything about how they're proponents of it or what they do to further education in the field, that's not going to look good to the general public or to this, the staff at that organization. Yeah. And speaking of education, one thing that means a lot to me when I read it in a young conductor's biography is when they don't forget where they came from. 
I acknowledged the schools I went to. I even acknowledged the youth orchestra that meant the most to me and the and the training program that I went to in high school that meant the most to me and changed my life. Because somewhere, someday, the people that work at those places or worked there when I was a student will see that and they'll know that we're paying it forward by even if we make it to a certain level in our career or whatever. Just because you sat in a room with Joshua Bell one day doesn't mean as much as I spent years at this place that helped shape me as a musician or this place gave me a scholarship or fellowship to further my studies. And then seeing as you ascend a, a, a tribute to those places is something that I think is especially thoughtful if you have those types of people or places that helped you along the way. Yeah, I love that. And one question I have for you, John, is you know, there's often the question of whether or not to include quotes because from press or media. You know, if you start to gather, you know, a local news reporter came to your concert and wrote a review and said the conductor appeared in this. How do you consider uh, whether or not to include those kinds of things in your bio? I don't think it's a problem if it's woven in an artful way into the way you're telling your story. Um, I use one quote in my biography that talks about how I designed a innovative concert program that left the audience stand, standing on its feet cheering because that's what I kind of like hope for out of my concerts. And that I want the audience that's reading the biography that time to know that I really care if you have a great experience. It wasn't like the shaping of the Malarian phrase resonated with the spirit of the Alpine region from whence it came. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? It's not like that. Right. So I, I think that that is a way to do it in a in something that doesn't draw attention to yourself, but really talks about the result of your work. How about you? That's a great question. Well, I just want to compliment you first on what you said, because the example of the quote you gave also backs up what you are saying you are. Uh, so that is another great way to really affirm that statement earlier on that you are into innovative concert design if somebody from the media actually wrote about the fact that you are accomplishing great innovative concert design. Yes, she called my concert refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think quotes quotes can be great. I think where sometimes people run into trouble with quotes is uh, using a phrase that doesn't help you. So they'll take like one word compliments or something. The quote, wonderful conductor. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> okay. Dot, dot, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you could have taken that from any generic article and it could even be about the Sopranos performance and not yours. I really don't right. know based on that quote. So you want to make sure that if you're using a quote that it's actually something that is obviously about you, the conductor, and really does advocate for you in a way that's beneficial, not just sounding flashy for the sense, for the sake of it. And one last tip before we kind of close this beat is that be prepared in advance because oftentimes an orchestra will write back to you after you send them your bio to include and say, this is way too long. Can you cut it down to 100, 250, 350, 500 words? Have those ready to go so that you can say, sure, boom, it's back to you. It makes you look more professional that you have that ready to go and you get to decide how it's edited down rather than somebody on the other side who doesn't know you as well. Yeah, because they'll pick and choose whatever information they want from your bio that may sound impressive to them and you may think is not best representing you. So it's better to make your own decisions in advance. All right. Well, we only have one beat left to go and this is going to be a fun one. So stick around for beat four.
Welcome back to Beat 4, where we're going to talk about this new wave trend of social media. Whoa, what? I know. See, we 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 have the I think benefit of being millennials where we didn't grow up with a cell phone and we have to dial up at 56k every once in a while on <laughs> AOL, but now we actually know how to use our phones and computers unlike older people. Oh, that's true. <laughs> well, more and more as we all know, social media is one of the important ways that we have to advocate for ourselves in written form. Of course, we can do it through video and photos and other things, but at some point, you're going to have to write a caption that gives some sort of sense of who you are or your personality. And there's so many different angles to take on this, John, because we are the sole person, unless you're working with someone from PR and marketing, who's going to decide how to portray ourselves online to not just a specific audience for one concert, like in a bio, or to a search committee, like in your CV. Now you're sending it out to the world for anybody to see. So... You have to be both careful and yeah. also very thoughtful about how you decide to It's a little scary. This. It's like this podcast. It <laughs> is. So, John, wh what goes through your brain when crafting how to sell yourself or even just message your potential audience members out in the world? I struggled with social media a lot for many, many years. Mm -hmm. I would go in spurts. I'd be like, you know what? This month, I'm going to post every day. And I'm going to be like, did you know that Beethoven had a dog or or then I, the next day I'd be like, I score study this way. And the next day is I can't wait for this concert. And the next day it was TBT. And here's a picture from last year when I did this impressive thing. Right. And it was too much. And then I would get busy and not post for two months. And then it would come back and I wouldn't get the traction I wanted. And um, I slowed down a little bit. And the pandemic gave me a chance to kind of reevaluate how I did this. And I signed up with a PR firm in Wheeling, actually, that specializes in social media for nonprofits and artists. And they had me draw a schedule, come up with the assets, write the quotes in advance or the or the the captions and figure out like a process and some really great ideas came from that like a playlist of what I'm listening to now or a, a, a short video or photo about my process and getting ready for concerts and a preview of what I'm looking forward to at the Wheeling Symphony and I saw and I analyzed how many people were ad adhering themselves to um, certain types of content versus others and eventually I felt like, okay, I gained enough information. I stopped working with the company, but that's my approach now is to celebrate the people that I work with at the Wheeling Symphony and at my other orchestras where I happen to be, have the opportunity to be a guest talking about the things that make me excited as a collaborator. And every once in a while, a little announcement of a piece of news so that people who follow me, um, especially from other communities where I might not live anymore can, can know what's going on in my life. Uh, I have more thoughts, but I'd really be interested to turn to you next and ask, you know, how did you decide this for yourself? Because I've looked over the years, you've been extremely consistent. You almost only post about a concert that happened the day before. You make sure it's an incredible photo. You're very kind of general in thanking the artist, thanking the orchestra, talking about what you liked about the post. And you don't post six times a week. You post two or three times a week when something important happens. Like, how did you come up with that as a strategy? And it's been impressive to watch as your numbers have just steadily grown over the years. Yeah, well, I, I mean, and by no means saying that my strategy is the correct strategy. I think it's just the strategy that felt right for me. And I think that's one of the important things is being true to yourself on social media, because you have to live in that world for the, for, well, uh, foreseeable period, if unless you're going to reinvent yourself on social media down the line. 
I am not particularly, even in real life, a person who is super open about my personal life. I keep it fairly protected. And so I have chosen on social media to do a similar thing where I keep it purely about my profession and the things that I'm doing work-wise. And that is just what feels comfortable to me. I mean, there are people who will post about every meal they ate, every encounter with a friend, every, you know... TV show they're watching, and then the concert that they have that evening. Don't forget evening. the pictures with famous people. Uh, absolutely. Um, and that, to me, just felt a little too revealing uh, of my personal life that I like to have a little bit of in, in my work. And so, for me, I've chosen to be a little more uh, specific about what I choose to share and a little bit more consistent in the type of content that I like going out there. Uh, but you know, as we all know, some of the most successful people on social media are not that. It's the exact opposite. It's the people that share every detail of their life. And that works for them if they are comfortable and willing to do that. Yeah. So just a couple like quick hitting thoughts, because my wife specializes in this. I worked with the PR firm. I, I got a few tips. First of all, the best time to post is before people wake up, if you can do that. Like if you can post at like six or seven in the morning, um, then people, what is the first thing everybody does when they wake up? They reach out their phone and scroll a little bit. If your content is there, you have a better chance of being seen throughout the day. Also, tailoring your content to the platform. Instagram does really well with one great picture that has one face in it and no text, and then a short caption. Now, a lot of us don't have time to tailor Instagram versus Facebook, but that's the best practice. And then remember, if you do have it set to auto-populate on your Facebook, which is what I do, um, then I go in and change the Facebook caption. But you have to remember that tags don't transfer from Instagram to Facebook. And Facebook does better with a little bit of text. Like I write a longer, more meaningful caption to a lot of the posts on Facebook. Um, And then I have a professional page and a personal page. And the only time I post on my personal page about my work is when something big and significant happens. I got a new job. I won a big award. We're announcing our season, a new hire at the symphony, something like that. And then talking about the authentic thing, to me, I remember what Thomas Wilkins said when we had a chance to talk with him about how oftentimes we view ourselves as special, right? Like we go to the special entrance to the special dressing room, get the special entrance with the special applause and the bow, and we have a special contract and we're featured on the website. But just remember that we aren't special. It's the job we have. And so one of the things that I just really believe is that like we can use social media as a mouthpiece to thank the people that don't get thanked in other ways. Um, you know, my season announcement came out thanks to the manager of marketing that spent hours in the office overtime that week to make sure that everything went right and set up the interviews and put up the stuff on social media, whatever. Or, you know, uh, the youth orchestra season ends and thank you to the directors of that group or whatever, because where else are we going to do that? Everyone's used to hearing thank you after thank you from the stage at the end of a concert. But like that social media thing, and that's what's felt very authentic to me is what people out there in the world are doing work that I think is cool. Who am I excited to collaborate with? What's coming up to the symphony that I think you might love and give you some insight into it? And then who made it possible? And so I cut back a lot of the self-focused stuff. Maybe you use good pictures, right? But then the people that support you, seeing that you support them in the channels that you have available, that cycle is a very healthy one. And I want to compliment you too, because you're very consistent, not only in thanking people in your posts, but you also thank people on their posts. You are very thoughtful about going and commenting on other people's things, which I think a lot of people forget about is part of 
the image you create for yourself online, whether it's positive by thanking and congratulating people when they make announcements or negative by criticizing people in other people's feeds or things like that. Everyone can see that if those are public comments and that is part of your media presence and part of what will start to create the entire vision of what people see you as. That's really important because social media as a imbiber can be very dark. Like we're conductors. We see people conducting concerts we wish we could have conducted or getting jobs we wish that we could have gotten or winning competitions that we didn't even get into or whatever. It's a little toxic, right? And if we get that feeling, it my my coach Elena, friend of the podcast, would say that's living from a point of scarcity. Like, why do we do this? We're sharing secrets that may help other people get jobs that we wanted someday, but it's that's living from a place of scarcity. So sometimes I go online and I say, for the next fifteen minutes, I'm not going to scroll past any post without liking it and then writing something nice to the person who wrote it, and that changes your experience from kind of a a myriad of emotional mini reactions to what you see, to how can I relate to you, think something positive about this person, help them feel celebratory because everyone puts themselves out there in a little bit of a vulnerable way with every post. They're hoping people interact with it. I'm not saying I do that all the time. Sometimes I'm lazy and just scroll, but I like being on social media with intention. And then, um, you know, that's not an unsuccessful way to have people then when they see your next post think I could do the same thing for whoever um, is out there being supportive for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a beautiful message. And I completely agree. It can be a very dark world of social media, and anything that we can do to make it a little lighter and a little more positive helps. Uh, and that n- translates beyond social media because it translates to then when you come in contact with those colleagues in real life, face-to-face, if we still do that ever, uh, it, it really makes a difference in creating that collegiality that we aren't able to do day-to-day. But if you can do that online, that will connect when you do Because isn't it true that like it used to be these people are my friends, these people are my family, these people are my colleagues, these people are strangers. There's a new tier in there which are social media contacts. Like you may have known them at some point or gone to school with them or were in an orchestra with them ways back. But now the only time we interact with them is that way and we have to think carefully about how we cultivate those relationships just as much as the people in other uh, tiers within our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just because you only – interact with them currently on social media doesn't mean they aren't going to come back in your life again in person. Right. Sitting here at the Lake George Music Festival, how many people have we both encountered that we knew from somewhere else? And then really it's like they know what they know about you because of Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, So anyway, that's a good place to wrap up, don't you think? Yeah. Speaking of Lake George Music Festival, we'll be coming back with three guests from the Lake George Music Festival after a short break. Stick around for the interview. Welcome to our interview. We are here with not one, not two, but three guests today. This I don't has know to be a first. It has to be a first. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've had this many guests, and we're going to do our best to sort of th- get 
everybody involved. It should be a fun uh, way to do our interview round this time. We have, uh, for those of you who listened to last episode, uh, first episode of this season, we are back with Roger Kalia because we are here still at the Lake George Music Festival. And Roger is the music director of Orchestra Santa Monica, the Evansville Philharmonic, Symphony New Hampshire, and a co-founder of Lake George Music Festival. <laughs> and I am running out of breath just saying all of those titles in one sentence. Could you leave some jobs for the uh, for our <laughs> listeners? It's like, <laughs> Uh, Then we have Amalia Hall, who is serving as our concertmaster here this week at the festival. She's also concertmaster of Orchestra Wellington in New Zealand and a violinist with the NZ Trio. Did I say that right? You sure did. (laughs) There was a correction beforehand. (laughs) She she, uh, attended Curtis here in the United States and has soloed and performed all over the world. So we're very excited to have you joining us. And finally, our conducting fellow this week is Joshua Edward, who's joining us. Uh, He is just finished his studies in Vienna in conducting and will be pursuing his doctoral degrees next year in Portugal, which is really cool. Yeah, we stayed in college park too long. Didn't I we? know we were, we did it wrong. I think John, uh, and Joshua also studied composition at USC. So we're very excited to have him here with us and we get a wide array of input from all of our panelists. Thank you all for being with us. Yeah, thank and, you. And we appreciate you so much again, Roger, for the invitation here and for suggesting the two guests that we have with us because they are an integral part of the festival. And in some ways, um, what you've done um, for the first time this year, you're working with both of these amazing artists um, in, in Amalia's case for the first time as a concert master of your orchestra and in Joshua's case for the first time as a conducting fellow. So would you kind of talk to us about how you brought both of these people into the Lake George Music Festival orbit and what it's going to be like to work with them over the course of the two weeks. Sure. Well, um, we're, I'm very excited to work with two incredibly talented musicians. I This is my first time working with Amalia, actually. And I uh, learned of Amalia through Barbora Kolarova, our um, director of chamber music, our artistic director. And I've had the opportunity now the past two days to work with the orchestra, with Amalia leading as concertmaster. And it's been Fantastic. I mean, the orchestra sounds great, the strings in particular. So I'm really, really impressed. It's been great. And uh, it's great. You know, we were talking about the weather change here. Amalia, you know, was had winter clothing of all the past couple of weeks. And now she has to switch to summer clothes and get into the summer groove of Lake George and that humidity, which is not which is not for the faint of heart. And then and then Joshua, I met Joshua a few years ago in uh, Los Angeles. And I um, knew him as a composer primarily, and then he reached out about conducting, and we started uh, working together. He started attending a few of my rehearsals with the Pacific Symphony and the Pacific Symphony Youth Orchestra, and um, I'm very excited to have him as the inaugural conducting fellow. That's amazing. Well, speaking of Joshua, I want to start with you and ask you a little bit about some of your studies, actually, because as John was jokingly saying, we're very jealous that you get to spend so much time in Europe, home to so many of the pieces and composers that we often focus our entire careers around. Uh, So you've done studies here in the United States, but also in Europe. So for those of our listeners who have not spent time, you know, developing any kind of education around conducting in Europe, can you tell us a little bit about what studies abroad are like for conducting? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I would highly recommend, <laughs> first of all, is a wonderful place to study music, wonderful culture, um, so many countries, right, so close together, so many different histories that you just get uh, to get exposed to very quickly and um 
and immersed in. So it's a wonderful place to study. Uh, I'd say my experience, uh, education there is certainly different. I would say on a practical level as a conductor there, I'm in a cohort where uh, many programs have some element of cohort in America, but you often have some level of private lessons or a more individual component. In Vienna, I was part of a, a group of about 10 conductors and we did everything together. So if we're working with piano, we're all there watching every single person work through the same issues. Um, so there's a real sense of community in the educational process that uh, you both got to learn from other people. You also didn't feel as bad when you totally mess up transition because you just watched three people also <laughs> just stumble their way through. So a little bit more of a masterclass type environment was uh, sort of the default for for the program there. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a variety of things that could go on that is much cheaper, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so that's a huge thing. I mean, I paid what you can pay for a more expensive masterclass for a year of my education in Vienna, um, which obviously opens other doors economically to be able to do masterclasses. I was going to just ask, so... Um you were thousands of miles away from the programs to which you were applying. How did you do your research and identify the way to apply and the right type of program for you from so far away? Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. An extremely complex part and a major barrier, I think, for a lot of people for studying abroad is just how do you even find a school <laughs> that you might go to? How do you know it's a real school with the real people, <laughs> right? Like these Wait, are very tuition is how much? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it very much feels like a scam. <laughs> like, um, so for me, it was actually through relationships. So I, I went to a music festival in Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, to have one of my pieces premiered. And the conductor, Christian Schultz, who I ended up studying with in Vienna, was a guest conductor at the festival, um, premiering pieces there. And so I just met him at a festival and, and started talking to him. And he was um, like over, you know, studying with many teachers, I, I've developed some sense of the type of person I'm interested in studying with. And he was a person that as soon as I met, I was like, you are the type of conductor I would like to become. And uh, so I just left that festival knowing this would be someone that I would really like to continue working with. That's the key. Find one person who has been to this place, find something, and then they will know someone. And that's how I sort of grew my general knowledge of opportunities in Europe, I've ended up going to Portugal, right, just with that one entry point and then branching from there. Amalia, why don't we turn to you? Because speaking of traveling far distances to study, although you didn't change languages, no. uh, you, you started <laughs> off in New Zealand and achieved a huge level of success as a young person there in many different aspects of violin playing. And then you went to study at Curtis. So could you talk about that beginning phase of your career and how you made the choice to come to Philadelphia and, and study? Sure. Well, I feel really lucky that I began violin at a very young age. I was only three years old. So it meant that whatever I began um, was very early. For example, orchestral playing, I actually started when I was five years old. And chamber music, I started when I was eight years old in my family quartet with my three older siblings. <laughs> and there are a couple of other things which were really important in my development as well. One was New Zealand National Youth Orchestra. And I joined that when I was 10. I was, I think, still probably the youngest ever member. And I just looked up to everyone in the orchestra. We had Ben Zander that first year, oh, and wow. he was so inspiring. I just cannot tell you how much that meant to me. You know, we did Shostakovich Fifth Symphony. Um, 
And that was just very magical for me. <laughs> was Ben Zander living in New Zealand at that time? No, he oh. was he was just visiting. Oh, he came wow. a couple of times. Okay, uh-huh. And yeah, so that uh, looking forward to the National Youth Orchestra course every year was a real highlight for me. And also there's a chamber music competition for high school students in New Zealand, which is a huge part of many musicians' development too. So People work towards this for months in advance and they really put a lot of energy into it. So things like that, um, I think were really instrumental in my development. I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a violinist from when I was six years old maybe is when I first remember thinking about it. Um, And in terms of going to Curtis, I had always heard about this amazing school in Philadelphia and it just seemed like a bit of a dream. You know, I never imagined that I would actually be able to be accepted there because coming from a small country like New Zealand, you never really know how you stand against the rest of the world. And I actually did my bachelor's degree in New Zealand before I went to Curtis. So I was really lucky that my teacher, one of my teachers at Curtis, Pamela Frank, she went to New Zealand on the jury um, uh, as a jury member for the Michael Hill violin competition, and I got to play to her in a masterclass, and I was just completely blown away by her charisma, her teaching style, the way she just embodied music so beautifully, and I thought I just have to learn from her. So I did apply to Curtis as well as other schools as well, and when I found out I'd been been accepted there, it was just an obvious yes. (laughs) I'm going to bring things back to Roger. I have a question now that we've met two of the people that are here thanks to you, really. I mean, as the co-founder of the organization, one of your big tasks is to staff and bring in the artistic talent that will join you each year or develop things like a new conducting fellowship, which is new this year. Uh, how, as a leader, do you make these kinds of decisions and choose the artistic talent that will come and embody the nature of your festival? Sure. Well, you know, the festival started off really as a strictly performance-based music festival. I mean, it was inviting friends of of mine or Alex's or Barbora's and really creating a place to just perform and make music with friends. Um, and I will say that over time, the festival has grown so much that now we have applicants from all over the world applying uh, through auditions, through videos. And it's grown in many ways. I would say that the big thing in the evolution of the festival that I want to stress, though, is that um, there are three things about the Lake George Music Festival in its evolution. One is that it's always been an artist retreat. What I mean by that, it's it's, it's a place where colleagues can make music together in a beautiful and serene place. I mean, you're right near the lake. It's just a gorgeous place. It's peaceful. It's like it's not a union job anymore. It's not. It's it's a place where we're we're treating each other as professionals, but you're not on the clock constantly. The other thing I want to say about this festival that and it's grown tremendously is the living composers we bring in, the new music we bring in, uh, composers from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, I mentioned this on the previous episode. You know, the development of a new music series, Sounds of Our Time, uh, working with electroacoustic groups like Balloon, led by composer Angelica. Negron, and even for our opening concert this week, working with the electro pop duo Archai, which is a really fascinating uh, group of musicians. Uh, not only that, because of the new music we're doing, we've been able to implement a composer's institute led by Alyssa Weinberg. And this is in its third year of development. It's taken off. We have composers applying from all over the world. 
and uh, they send in videos. We listen in and we uh, choose uh, these composers the same way we choose our musicians. The third thing that's really special about the Lake George Music Festival is the fact that it embraces the community of Lake George. Uh, what I mean by that is we have a number of host families that house our musicians throughout the duration of the festival. And this has created a really special bond with the community. And that's developed over time. We now have over, I think, 30 host families actually who participate in housing our musicians. It's really fantastic. Um, but in terms of the musicians this year, the format has changed slightly and now we're doing masterclass formats. We're doing three different sorts of levels of musicians. We're all here working together as mentors, artists in residence, and fellows. And basically what I mean by that is, um, what you have now is our artists in residence and our mentors are established professionals in the field. They're working in such a way to mentor the fellows of the festival. The fellows are mostly undergraduates or conservatory students who are learning their, the, the field, the music field in terms of, you know, how do you win an audition? How do you get this job? And just playing music at a high level, you know, in the orchestra, it's wonderful because it's essentially like, it's a side-by-side -side in the sense that you're sitting next to these mentor figures, these artists in residence. We have a fellow sitting next to uh, Amalia, a violin fellow, who's really um, a young and upcoming violinist. So it's wonderful to see that camaraderie and passion. Yeah, and what a beautiful opportunity for them to soak in not only the music, but then, you know, I'm sure in between passages, they might turn to you, Amalia, and be like, hey, you know, what What exactly are you doing? Why, why did you choose to hook the bowling there? Or why, you know, and those kinds of things. Or or even pick your brain about, hey, what's your orchestra like in New Zealand? Which, you know, <laughs> when else are you going to get to ask someone that question on a daily basis? That's fantastic. It's such a beautiful sort of philosophy and <laughs> yeah. way, of, way of creating a program. I love that. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit, Roger, now about the way that the instrumental mentorship program is designed. You have an additional one here with Joshua, who um, is your conducting fellow. And you mentioned when we had dinner earlier this week that um, conducting teaching is not something that you do on a regular basis, but that you're very excited to work once again with Josh, with whom you have some history. Could you talk about the way you thought through the design of the conductor fellowship and how that will play out in your relationship over the next couple of weeks? And remember, he's listening, so don't <laughs> he's, say anything. He's, he's, he's literally five feet from me. I know, I know. <laughs> it's all good things, don't worry. <laughs> you know, over, over the years, I have participated in dozens of masterclasses, uh, music festivals with conducting fellowship programs. They were so beneficial to me in my growth as a conductor. And, you know, we're always learning as conductors and as musicians, we're always learning. Um, I think the most effective tool is podium time. So when I structured this conducting fellowship, I, I thought to myself, I want to make sure the fellow has podium time with actual musicians, not just observing, not just covering me, but actually being on the podium right from the start. And he was, I mean, the first day of the festival, Joshua was conducting the festival orchestra in our first rehearsal. But I promised Joshua, I said to myself, I want to give him something that will be rewarding to conduct, something that will be um, helpful to him in the long term when he's applying for jobs or applying for different competitions. So Joshua will be leading the festival orchestra on Sasson's Dance Bacchanal on our opening night concert. And he has already uh, worked with the orchestra twice now. He has recorded himself conducting with the orchestra. And actually what we're going to do is take time to review the video and focus on things that maybe could improve or things that were really good. And the orchestra is really, what I appreciate about the orchestra is that 
they're really following the Joshua. You know, it's oftentimes where there's a young conductor and maybe they, you know, they try to ignore the conductor, but everyone wants to help. And that's so important, really. Um, and the other thing is I wanted to make sure that um, repertoire was based on we, we would focus on repertoire that is important in your development as a conductor. So, right. for example, like next week, we're going to focus on five different works um, that he may encounter in different auditions. Uh, Beethoven 7, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony, the Stravinsky Firebird Suite, uh, Rossini, Barbara Seville Overture. All of these pieces are typically found on auditions. Mm -hmm. And you're actually probably most likely if you're a music director of an orchestra, you're going to conduct one of those. So I think um, it's important to work on this repertoire on a longer-term basis. Again, longer-term meaning a couple of days. But we, we will have a string court quintet with us so Joshua can work with them. And then finally, the last thing I wanted to mention about this fellowship is the off-the-podium skills. <laughs> this is something I can't stress enough, and I know you've spoken about this, guys. <laughs> I know you have, is they don't teach you how to do a lot of the off-the-podium jobs. So when I was um, in 2015, I studied with Mei-Yen Chen as part of the Chicago Sinfonietta Conducting Fellowship. And this was all focused on off-the-podium things, how to talk to a room full of school children, how to... Uh, get money and support from local donors. They actually had mock interviews with board members of the orchestra. And it was really, really helpful. So Joshua and I are going to take time to talk about uh, what questions you may end up having to answer in an audition, how you're going to talk to a Rotary Club uh, meeting at a Rotary Club meeting. So all of these different skills I hope to dive into. That's fantastic. That's totally on brand for us. That we is love very that. Much that, is our, that is our. Yeah, thing. and if you feel like writing a guest article for the EC <laughs> database, <laughs> in all your free time between your fifty million jobs that you have, just, you're yeah. not going to let me live that job. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go into sort of a little speed round where we're going to throw random questions at you all that you have not maybe seen or previously prepared for. And I'd love to start with you, Amalia, because uh, what a fantastic opportunity to reach out to someone from such a wealth of experience seeing conductors from all over the planet. In your encounters, what is maybe, as a concertmaster, one of the best or worst things a conductor can do <laughs> when they're sitting in, standing in front of you on the podium? <laughs> Keep in mind that there's four conductors surrounding you. <laughs> I think, actually, hearing when there's a problem and fixing it, honestly, it's such a basic thing, but it makes the orchestra sound better. It makes everyone feel good about it sounding better. And it makes a fantastic performance in the end. So not being afraid to actually point things out when there is an issue. You know, it's um, a simple construct, but it's important. I have a question for Joshua now. Uh, we have a lot of conductors that listen that are young conductors, and you have been very successful recently in applying to all these different programs and getting in, whether it's the Lake George Music Festival or, you know, your new grad program in Portugal. What would you say is a good piece of advice for people trying to decide where even to apply, like the kinds of things that would be good for them. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, and I know in your podcast, you've gone through, right? Like making a database of every program, right? In, in America, <laughs> that's certainly one way to do it. Um, I think it's, you know, over time you get to know yourself. And I think like for me, it was getting to know what type of person do I work best with? Who in, you learn that from going to master classes and, you know, obviously like take everything in, but especially pay attention. How is your experience with this person and their style? What type of conductor makes me better? And um, I've also, 
just applied to so many things, right? And so it's it's also just keeping, you know, a wide, casting a wide net and um, with intention, of course. Like I've never applied to somewhere that I wasn't very interested in going. Um, but and then you just, you know, you never know how you're going to be perceived or what so many things go into people's decisions to bring, invite you to an audition or to accept you. And you've just got to get your footage in there, <laughs> just get in the mix. And um, and then, yeah, walk through the doors that open. Amali, how about one more question for you that uh, you, you um, um, what are qualities in young conductors, even if they don't have the musical authority that somebody who is the music director might have that can impress you and make you eager to work with someone? I think as much as they can possibly be sure of their own musical convictions, that's really important um, so that they're able to have sincerity in what they're saying. I think it, it, there is a danger of any student, and this goes for conductors and instrumentalists as well, when you're a student, you're thinking about what your teachers have told you and you think, okay, I've been told this, I need to do that. But actually, at the end of the day, the most important thing is to do what feels right. And so if you really find out what you believe about that music, you will be transmitting that to the audience, to the orchestra, to the musicians, and that is what will be effective. That sounds like a really beautiful sentiment on which maybe we can end this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to thank each of our guests, Joshua, Amalia, Roger. Um, what a rewarding conversation from three different angles that's going to help our audience so much. Uh, we appreciate your time very, very much. And uh, next, the coda. Well, this is not only the coda for this episode, but this is going to be the coda that marks the end of our time here at Lake George Music Festival, John. And it has been so fun to get to do a residency with you now and two episodes in a row with amazing guests. And I'm just so appreciative of uh, both Alex and Roger again for inviting us here and then for you and my partnership on this because it's just such an incredible thing to reflect now that we're in season five on how far and all the places we have brought our listeners to. Yeah, thank you to the Lake George Music Festival team. And I love that word you use, reflect, because I'd like to reflect right now because this is, I think, the first traditional 4-4 and like episode that we've done in person. And how easy has it been? Like we've just been knocking it out and it feels so seamless. And uh, we've recorded two full episodes in two days. I mean, it's been uh, it's been a lot of time on the mic, but we've developed something very special right over this these these three years. And now we're in the fifth season. And we thank all of you who are listening for being part of mine and Rico's friendship. We hope that the information is valuable to you. And we also also hope that you like hanging out with me and Enrico because I sure like hanging out with you. I definitely do too. And we appreciate you all listening. Like John said, uh, it's funny because we didn't really get an end of season four reflection uh, because we had a live episode, which was great and, right. and different. And then we didn't have a start of season five reflection because it was a live episode and it was great. Um, but I, I do have to say that it's nice, the kind of groove we've gotten into yeah. and, and we, I think, are now challenging ourselves because, you know, it was trickier to come up with a 4-4 topic this week. It was. Because 
now we have to look through four seasons of stuff and try and figure out stuff that we haven't talked about right before. Behind the scenes, it's like we were going to do this uh, idea of like written materials about yourself. We're like, did we do that? Le-? And we literally <laughs> scrolled through every single one of yeah. the episodes on Spotify yesterday <laughs> and gave ourselves an extra five star rating. Oh, oh yeah. wonderful. Yeah, we somebody's got to. I mean, hey. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and scrolling through, seeing all the guests that have been on the podcast has been really fun. And having a few of them back for a second time is always great as well, aside from our, you know, wonderful team members, Ankush and Anna, obviously. Um, and today, having a variety of people in the interview right. from different angles all at once so that we kind of had a more broad look at conducting and music in general, but we're able to hit all different topics in that one little quick-hitting interview session was kind of unique. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And Looking back, one of the things I'm proudest of as far as the diversity of guests is the different angles of approach we've taken towards conducting because as part of this website and part of this project, we know that we want to hear about things that are coming at conducting from different angles. We had somebody who's a news anchor to talk about public speaking. We had a career coach in to talk about ways that you can think about yourself as a business going forward and and shaping who you are in the world. We've had my wife came in and talked about PR and communications. And what were a couple of the other favorite ones from you looking back? Oh my gosh. I mean, we've had people everything from librarians to arts administrators to executive directors to opera singers. I mean, the variety, I think, is just one of my favorite things. And one of the things that I think most recently I've loved is in the live episodes, hearing questions from our audience. I want to encourage all of you listeners out there that, you know, we are on our monthly basis or whatever we're doing these at now, you know, guessing oftentimes as to what would be the most valuable thing. But one of the most meaningful things to John and I is hearing from you or hearing your questions or the types of people you would like to hear from and then making that possible because you know you get more ideas and more growth the more people's voice and opinions and thoughts you're collecting from yeah so please reach out to us you can reach at us at everythingconducting um, at gmail.com you can also send us a message on facebook or a dm on instagram we'll read it and if you have an idea for the type of guest you would like to hear or a specific person or a 4-4 topic or even want to t- suggest uh, your own uh, fake ad there not that go. we're trying to get out of doing this work on our own <laughs> but it would be great to hear from you so that we know what's being received well because if you're hanging in with us here by season five, you're probably spending a lot of time with us and we want to make it as valuable as possible. I mean, we love it regardless, but we also are here for you. And we appreciate hearing from so many of you, uh, even in Omaha, knowing how many of the people that were there came to the EC family through through the podcast. So it's been very rewarding. And uh, speaking of rewarding, I would just want to say like hearing the music making and the caliber of the people in the orchestra here at Lake George Music Festival, we've enjoyed hearing that so much, especially under the direction of Roger. And he's become a friend. And also this idea of a tiered system where they have resident artists, they have fellows, and then they have the students. Um, It just really makes a difference in terms of the culture of the festival. What have you noticed, Enrico? Yeah, I love this idea of not only there being a distinction in the levels, but then the fact that they are all still part of the same orchestra and the same ensemble. So you are working next to the same person who's about to give you a masterclass one day, or maybe you're sitting next to the, the person who is brought in and happens to work for the Buffalo Philharmonic, and you may be in college starting your undergrad. I mean, the idea of collaborating with people across not only the country and world, but across the professional accomplishments levels and different points in their career, I think is so critical to 
not only educating the next generation of musicians and conductors, but also fulfilling yourself if you are at the top end of that too. You know, the musician from that orchestra gains something by having to function as a mentor and having to explain or guide that instrumentalist next to them. And I think that's such a beautiful collaborative thing, which is the main premise as to why we started Everything Conducting was to do exactly that for conductors. And I think it's a little bit innovative that they brought us here to shed another light on what can be done in the music industry by um, telling the stories in a different way. It's a creative approach and it's something that we value and we're happy to have been here. And um, it means a lot to, uh, to us to have been invited. Yeah. So if you happen to have a music festival, say, in like Tahiti or the Bahamas and would like to bring us there as well, we are definitely open to that idea. <laughs> yeah. Wait, should we say the email address again? Do you think that would be good? Yeah. Um, and, and, and if you are a young conductor out there, know about the fellowship here because it's not the traditional uh, – Tanglewood, Aspen, Monta, EMF, and those programs are out there. But if this is a special one-on-one fellowship with Roger, who has all of these different jobs and different communities, and it's a young person helping a fellow uh, conductor uh, along, um, that's something that would be really valuable. So keep an eye on this. Or if you're an instrumentalist, a great place to spend a couple weeks in your summer. Absolutely. Well, you will learn more about these kinds of opportunities and others that we come across as we continue to talk to you all on the mic in these episodes. Thank you again so much for listening and hope to give you some more information on our next episode. You'll hear it on our next Upbeat.